Today's professionals feel overwhelmed, overworked, and exhausted. For many, the expectations of work don't align with the realities of life. There is a constant demand to do more, and it seems harder than ever to juggle a successful career with a fulfilling life. So is working more actually making us more productive? This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, well-being leader for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk all things well-being. We're just squeezing families all across the board. We're making it really difficult. Uh, just, <laughs> we're supposed to be about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It seems like we've forgotten the most fundamental thing uh, that this country's supposed to be about, and that's living a good life. I'm here with Bridget Schulte. She's a journalist, author, and speaker on work-life, productivity, and gender issues. She's also the director of the Better Life Lab at New America. Let's just dive right in. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you become passionate about work life and productivity? Through utter ignorance. And and really through my own experience. Okay. So uh, you know, I, I I've I've been a journalist all my life, mm-hmm. and I I think I got into daily newspapers because I was such a perfectionist that I never finished anything. So I needed daily deadlines to really force me to actually get the work done. So I got used to a very intense uh, intense pace, and you know, like like most other overachievers or Americans, because we are this sort of overachieving culture. You know, I always wanted to be really good at what I did. So, you know, I poured myself into work, and then I got married, and I had two kids, and I just felt like my hair was on fire because I was also trying to be, uh, you know, kind of the a super mom. The yeah. you know everything to everyone. Everything to everyone. I was trying to work like my dad, who was sort of this solitary breadwinner, and he was always working or always thinking about work and always seemed very preoccupied. So I thought that was the right way to, to mm-hmm. work. And then I was trying to be a parent like my mom. And she was a stay-at-home mom, and she drove the field trips, and, yeah. you know, she didn't bake the cookies. But, you know, <laughs> uh, so I, I had these sort of kind of ideals in my head about who I needed to be. I didn't have any good role models about how do you realistically combine these two roles and be really good at them. I, I really, I was, the I, the stress was just off the charts. Did, did you believe it was possible to do both and no, be good at them? No, okay. I didn't. And everyone I talked to, you know, friends, my sisters, family, it, it seemed like the conversations were always the same, you know. Uh, how are you doing? I'm barely making it. Uh, nobody re- had it figured out. Nobody had it figured out. And I remembered uh, after I had my uh, my son, and I'd been, I had a, I had a lovely, it was unpaid, but I did have maternity leave. Uh, and I loved that time that just that, that just being able to wake up in the morning and all you had to do was bond with this brand new baby and try to figure out how, how to make life work in this completely new situation. It's like, what did that mean to be a mother? What did that mean to be a family? And that's all you had to do. It was it's why I'm such a huge proponent of paid family leave. Everybody yeah. should have that opportunity. 
And then I remember going back to work and it was just like I was slammed into this wall. Nobody, you know, nobody understood what I was going through. And I remember somebody at work saying, oh, you know, you'll have a hard day, you know, March, whatever, 15th, but you'll be fine by March 17th or whatever. It's like, what? <laughs> like I was supposed to all of a sudden just flip back to who I was. And right. I had really gone through this massive transition and there was this expectation that I would go back to work and be this same hard-charging reporter, you know, uh, kind of trying to hide your family. And I remember bragging to one of my editors, well, and I've got, you know, backup childcare and backup, backup childcare, so I'm always here. If there's something on deadline, I am here. And the expectation was like, well, of course you will be, yes, right. you know, uh, work comes first. But then I would go home and just, you know, just as gooey, lovely little <laughs> baby. And it's just like, how could I ever be away from this child and wanting to And the devote... backup, backup, backup childcare didn't seem like such a yeah, good idea. Yeah, not anymore. such a good idea. And there was no option for backup, backup work. And uh, so I was just, I felt really torn and everyone I knew felt that way. And I remember going back to work and talking to one of my working mother friends and sort of kind of getting weepy, uh, driving to work and, you know, hated to leave my child and feeling really guilty and torn. And and I said, and, and today I know every all of the other mothers in my mother's group, because many of them decided to stay home. They had sort of the financial resources that we didn't. Uh, you know, being two reporters, you it was it was tough, uh, yeah. uh, tough to make it on one salary. So I went back to work, and uh, especially in this northern Virginia area, other places you could probably do it. Uh, but that also wasn't the right choice for me. You know, I didn't want this either-or choice. Right. But I remember just being so sad that that was the day that they were meeting. And my friend, she just said, honey, you're a working mom. This is as good as it gets. I was like driving, talking to her on my cell phone in the car. And so so I was just always feeling pulled in different directions, really inadequate. Like I just couldn't couldn't be good enough at work, couldn't be good enough as a mother or at home. You know, never mind trying to keep house. <laughs> that just that went out the door. Never mind trying to take care of myself. That also was the first thing that went right. out the door. So um, I had I'd broken out in stress eczema. I, you know, wow. wasn't sleeping, you know, really burning my candle. I, I say out, out both sides and out the middle. You know, it was more than just burning your candle at both ends. And if you don't mind me asking, how, how many years ago was this? So it was probably, it was, it was about 10 years ago. Okay. And, and do you feel like anything has changed? Has it gotten better? Oh, absolutely. Okay. It's changed enormously. Okay. So, but how I got here was just really experiencing just how difficult it is in in this country in particular to try to combine work and life. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and in my case, I really experienced it through motherhood, but other people experience it through elder care or their own illness right. or or just having something else they're passionate about. Right. And trying just to, wanting to have a life. Just <laughs> wanting to have a life. And we don't make it easy. Yeah. You know, we have these jobs that are demanding and exciting but really ask too much too much of you and and the culture is such that it's very difficult to push back against that yeah. because then you're somehow seen as not good enough or you can't hack it or not committed and not or, committed yeah. mm -hmm. and at the other end we really put put people through such a ringer because we don't have jobs that have living wages. We don't have benefits that can actually help them combine work and life. And so we're just squeezing families all across the board. We're making it really difficult. Um, uh, just <laughs> we're supposed to be about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It seems like we've forgotten 
the most fundamental thing uh, that this country is supposed to be about, and mm-hmm. that's living a good life. And you've touched on, I mean, you've talked about work life and work and life, and you know, work-life balance is a common term that we all hear, especially in corporate America, but I think generally in society, this whole notion of work-life balance. But I, I think that balance is kind of one of those things that's never really achievable. And maybe this is this kind of goes to what you're saying. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, is balance the I don't want to get stuck on terminology, but can we ever really expect balance? Is balance the right thing to have, or is it flow or rhythm, or you know, is that changing because of the way we're working? Working is changing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, it's so interesting that people have a problem with the idea of work-life balance because you have this idea of a, like a teeter-totter or yeah. a seesaw, and that it has to be at this 50-50. 50-50. and it's not. Yeah. And I think that that's I, I I think that that's a a misunderstanding of what the term work-life balance means. And I think if you look at your life in a you know kind of zoom out a little bit, if you look not just at a day, is a day fifty-fifty, or is the week or the month, but are you giving energy and time to the different parts of your life that 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 make it worth living? Uh, you know, the subtitle of my book came from the, uh, Eric Erickson, the Harvard psychologist, who said the the good life, the people who live the richest and fullest lives, make time and give energy to what he called the three great arenas of life: work, love, and play. Mm-hmm. You know, meaningful, purposeful work the time to connect with other people, the the social connections that really form the basis of, of human happiness. All the studies in the world of happiness show that we're happier when we're connected we're to other people. Connect, yeah, I mean, it's part of our being. Exactly. Yeah. And then and then time for leisure or play. Right. That something that is uh, that gives you just pure joy. And I would argue that we don't make time for that at all. Um, so... But you, you were asking, like, do I believe that it can change? And uh, I absolutely do. And the reason that I got so passionate about work life and the reason that I can believe that I believe that it can change is because I had an experience um, that led me to writing a book. And I literally was given time to use my skills as, as, as an investigative journalist to really investigate modern life. Mm-hmm. Why is it so overwhelming? Why do so many people feel the way that I did, sort of personal failures that they can't figure out how to make their lives work? Why is it so hard? What is it about America that makes it like this? Is it, is it different anywhere else? And, and I really wanted to know why are things the way they are and how can they be better? You know, were there places like the blue zones yeah. where people live long, healthy lives? Were there places, bright spots, where people were combining work and life in better ways? And so I had the gift of time to investigate and then write this book. And that's what changed. It changed It changed me entirely. I, you know, I, I, it changed me personally. But more importantly, I think more than anything, it changed my it changed what I believe is possible because I saw how it could be different. So tell me a little bit, like give us, give me, give us some of those examples. I'm dying to know. Yeah. <laughs> well, so let's look at work, love, and play. Like how can it be better? So in the United States, I would argue that work doesn't work here. We work really long hours, and we are productive, but we pay a huge price for it, and we are not as productive per hour as other countries that have the similar rates of productivity per hour and work far less. Mm. 
Like if you look at international productivity comparisons, the most productive country is Norway. Mm -hmm. And they work under the European Work Time Directive of 37.5 hours a week by law, unless you have certain exceptions. Uh, we are about as productive as Denmark. We are about as productive per hour as France. And we love to make fun of France and people drinking cappuccino all day or, you know, at the cafe, taking six weeks of paid vacation. Oh, my God, having paid family leave. And yet we are about as productive per hour as they are. And I think that mm -hmm. that's a message we start. We need to start thinking about. So, so here in the United States, if you work a crazy long shift – or, you know, you work crazy long hours. There's research that shows that if it's voluntary, you know, so mainly for knowledge workers, you don't have to, you're not being paid overtime, that we actually give that person greater status, that we mm -hmm. tend to think that they are better or superior or more interesting. We uh, celebrate them. We celebrate yeah. them. We want to be like them. Uh, you know, interestingly, that same sort of status effect doesn't happen if you have to work overtime, right. if you're sort of at the or lower end. Or you have to work two jobs or three jobs just to make ends meet. We're not celebrating. We're not you. celebrating that busyness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a, and yet we are celebrating this bizarre gifting of our lives back to our corporations or corporate America or companies, which is which is fascinating and troubling and bizarre. It's like, you know, we're exploiting ourselves. You yeah. know, talk about worker exploitation. <laughs> we're doing it willingly. So, I was doing it willingly. Yeah, so what, I mean, so what can we as individuals and as leaders and as organizations, I mean, I'd love to go as far as society, but, mm -hmm. you know, we can't boil the ocean here. But, like, where, where do we start in fixing this? I mean, I, I think in some respects, perhaps I'd like to say we're – on the journey? Well, and it's a lot of what I'm doing here at the Better Life Lab mm -hmm. is trying to figure out how do you push that change? How do you change policy? How do you change practice? Mm -hmm. How do you change culture? How do we shift our mindsets to thinking that it is possible? And one of the things that I find is, you know, when I go give talks or I'll give, give workshops and you'll go into a, co a corporation or a company and you'll ask people, all right, you know, you're all struggling with work-life conflict. You're all feeling overwhelmed. What's your vision of what it, what it would look like if you had work-life balance or flow or fit right. or, or time for the things that are most important in your life, which includes work. What would that look like? Nobody knows because nobody takes the time to figure it out. Mm. And so that's probably the most important thing that you can do as an individual is just disrupt that cycle of busyness. We get in this, this, uh, this cycle where we're just going, 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 going. The, I love this term, behavioral scientists have actually looked at busyness. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that because you're sort of in this time scarcity mode, that it actually tunnels your vision, that you literally lose about 13 IQ points because you cannot see beyond the tunnel. Yeah. So the you're only able to see the fires right in front of you. So you're no longer able to think strategically or creatively or outside yeah. of the box. Yeah. So we're all tunneling. Um, and so, so what I would love to see is people themselves taking time out to figure out, get out of the tunnel, disrupt that cycle of busyness, and really become clear on what is most important to you in that day, in that week, in that month. Think about work and love and play and giving love and play as much importance as work. Mm -hmm. 
And then what I would love to see is corporate America and business and the business community really understanding that by frying your workforce, you are actually harming yourself. That, you know, that it, probably one of the most pro-capitalist, pro, um, you know, product, productivity kinds of things you could do is really take care of your workforce. And I think as a society, we absolutely need to think about what is this society that we're trying to create? A nation shows what it values through the policies that it holds. We have really no policies that support work and life, mm -hmm. no policies that support um, you know, the good life, if you will. Very, very few. We have one uh, unpaid family medical leave, yeah. which, you know, took 10 years to pass, you know, was vetoed twice, and doesn't really work very well. Right. It doesn't cover some 40% of the workforce. Very few people have access to paid leave. Uh, if you are at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, you can't afford to take unpaid leave. And so that's why you get this really horrendous situation where one in four U.S. mothers go, they go back to work within two weeks of giving birth. I, I can't, there are more than 20 states where you can't separate a puppy from its mother before eight <laughs> weeks. How can we have laws that treat puppies better than we do human children? So I think that we need to be having these larger conversations. We've in the United States, we've always thought of families and work life as sort of some kind, somehow separate from political discourse or the public sphere, that that's a private issue and family should take care of it. And I think that the workforce has changed so much. We really need to be thinking much more broadly and holistically because really right now we're just running ourselves into the ground. So do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? <laughs> You know, I have a hard time predicting. Uh, uh, you know, I do see certainly bright spots uh, here in the United States. You do see conversations. You know, you're the head of well-being at a major corporation. That's a really exciting and positive trend, that there are conversations. There mm -hmm. is a recognition. There's more and more research that's going on about how this is important. You've got uh, professors from Stanford and Harvard coming up with algorithms right. to look at more than 200 studies of like work stress and psychosocial uh, issues that, that lead to ill health. And, you know, we're beginning to, to really take seriously the human element in the work-life conversation. So I do see that there are signs of hope. And do you think that this um, is a place, and maybe it's, it's my role and where I sit, but I mean, I, I believe that this is an area where corporate America should be or has the opportunity to lead, maybe not should be, um, but I think corporate America can impact change here that can that can trickle down if we're not getting it from broader society. So it's almost a call to action to those of us that are in this space to create a more humane work environment. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you can see, you can't see my head <laughs> nodding. Yeah, absolutely. I think that when you look. You know, there are all sorts of different pieces of the puzzle that we all need to work together to make real positive change. And corporate America has a huge role in this, uh, leading by example, showing how it's possible. You know, you're, you're asking about bright spots. Some of the bright spots are companies and corporations who are doing things differently and showing that it's possible. Um, so I think that there's absolutely a role to play. There's absolutely a role to play in national policy mm -hmm. to to make sure that 
the, the sort of good life benefits, if you will, is not just available to the few or right. the elite or the people with knowledge or education or resources, but really is... Uh, Who we are as a nation. Yeah, it's yeah. a citizenship right, yeah. is basically. If you're an American, you have the opportunity for a good life. And we need to figure out how to make that much more possible and, and within the grasp of so many more people. And then there are things that you can do as an individual. And one of the things that you can do right here, right now, and I saw this when I was traveling, talking about bright spots. You know, I've worked, again, in newspapers for so much of my career. And if I pulled an all-nighter, I worked late, I'd be, I'd come in and I'd grumble in the morning. But it was a bit of a humble brag. Ugh, I worked all night. Ugh. You know, but it was like... We'll talk about sleep later, Bridget. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, but it was sort of like, and aren't I amazing? And I'm so dedicated. Yeah. And so I was, as, as much as I was complaining about it, I was also unconsciously signaling, look at me. I belong. I, I'm important. And the funny thing is, when I was in Denmark and I was reporting for the for a chapter in the book, <laughs> I, I mentioned something like that, and I got this really bizarre, quizzical look from this guy. And they said, "You have to understand, you know, we work seven seven and a half hours, really intensely a day. But when we leave, we leave, and anybody who works late, we ask, why can't you get your job done mm-hmm. in the time you have allotted? What's wrong with you? And there was an American I met over there, and she had a real struggle with that. She said when she first got to Denmark, she worked like an American. First in, last out, ate lunch at her desk. She would leave so late that in Denmark, that is not part of their culture. Every place was closed. Restaurants were closed. All the lights were off. All the lights were off. She said I could go to the grocery, the, the gas station and buy crackers. That was the only thing that was, that was open. And then the time came for her performance review, and she thought she was going to get this big bonus, and she didn't because they said, you have to understand that one of the top three things that we measure our employee performance on is work-life balance, and you don't have any. So she had to go home and learn how to have a life. And what she, what, it startled her that by taking time and going out and riding Icelandic ponies with her family and taking time off. I mean, so that's a huge call to action huge to employers, to right? Like, I mean, add it, put it as part of a performance metric. I mean, Absolutely. we know that we achieve what we measure, right? What measure, so. what's, what gets measured gets, what gets done. Gets done you know, and so. instead of having this conversation about like, you know, did you go above and beyond? You know, wow, you're really given 110%, 150%. Have that conversation that we really value you bringing your whole self, all of your energy to work. How can we make sure that that's happening? Because I kind of see you starting to burn out. Because when you're burned out, you're going to make the easier choice. You're going to put the fire out right in front of you. I saw that in myself. I would get so tired that I would do the smaller, mm-hmm. easier story that would be like the quick hit. Look at me. I've got the byline in the paper. Check that off. My byline count, whatever. But, you know, as I when I left the post to come to New America and I was cleaning out my files, there were big, thick files of half-reported stories that if I had just had a little bit more bandwidth, if I had just had a little bit more energy, maybe I actually could have pulled them mm-hmm. off and pulled them together and done something. I, I don't want to say that I didn't do extraordinary things. I did, right. but I could have done more if I had been less frantic and busy and stressed out, and if I had just created that space to think a little bit more creatively. You and I have, have talked before about, um, and you, you've talked about some of your travels to other countries, and I, I kind of became fascinated with some of your stories around the work culture in Japan and 
kind of what there is to to learn from that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this has been one of the things. So after I wrote my book and I became really passionate about, I, I felt like the book helped me understand what was going on. I became really passionate about trying to figure out how to change it. How do you make this better? And how do I use my skills now as a, as a journalist is what I do. And so I really began focusing on work culture and overwork because I was just seeing so much pain out there. And I was seeing that work was really what was driving it. It's not like, you know, people didn't want to be at home. It's not like life was causing the conflict. Work was really the, the source of so much of the conflict. So I wanted to really dive into that. And as I was looking around and again looking at international comparisons, one of the things that really caught my eye was that Japan and South Korea as well, they work among the longest hours. I mean, actually longer than the United States. So they're working long hours and they're not having they're not they're not having children, they're not getting married, they're not only not having lives, they're not reproducing their own society. Wow. They're you know, they're in this really precarious position. So the downstream impact of that is huge. 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 Yeah. And they're not being productive. And so I was I was really curious, like why is it that a country is really eating itself alive in work hours? What's what's driving that? Uh, and so I, I, I was lucky enough to get a fellowship. And so I went to Japan and I spent six weeks and my whole focus was really on the overwork culture. And I have to admit, I overworked a little bit <laughs> writing about overwork, but I did, I did get to like the, you know, the hot springs and the public bath. So I would make time for myself. <laughs> it was, it was really a, um, it was a, it was a devastating experience. I, I, I met so many people. You couldn't go anywhere. And I, I'm really lucky. I had a wonderful translator who really understood this issue. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't talk to anyone who did not have some kind of story of a family member or a friend or a coworker who actually overworked to the point of either death or serious illness or um, losing their job or getting depressed, suicide. Oh. Everybody had a story. And it was so pervasive. And one of the things that I found so troubling is that the young people there are really suffering from depression because they don't want this life, right. but they don't have a choice or they don't feel that they have a choice, that there's no other way to work. They call it the one road. You know, you work really hard, you graduate from university, you get a job in one of these big companies, and then, you know, it used to be you were set for life and the company would take care of you, and now the one road leads you basically one road right to an early grave because they expect this endless work hours. I, I talked to this one young guy and he said, you know, part of the culture is you can't leave until your boss leaves. And he said, I was at work the other night at 11. I had nothing to do. So I just was, you know, Xeroxing blank papers to try to look busy. Huh. So this is part of where some of these long hours don't really mean anything right. other than sap the life out of you and the, sap the lifeblood out of your company and your country. So uh, I spent a lot of time with a group of people who are trying to change it. There are, uh, and, and, sort of tragically, the group of people who are trying to change it are people who've lost someone mm -hmm. to overwork, death by overwork. So a lot of widows, um, a lot of mothers. But sadly, increasingly, uh, there are more women because Japan has, you know, in, in their push for trying to get more women into the workplace, right. really what they've done is created the opportunity for now women to to basically overwork themselves. So I spent time with a with a mother whose daughter 
worked such insanely long hours that after only two months, she became almost delirious. And she didn't, the mother said that she spent this evening and she, she bought some like toiletries, um, not the behavior of somebody who was, a, who, was a, who was suicidal, but then literally just jumped off a building yeah. and killed herself. Just so tired, right. so delirious. And, you know, they, they do track these statistics. Um, there is a process whereby you can apply for like a workman's compensation payment. Mm-hmm. And so uh, looking at the government reports, you know, we tend to think of the, the middle-aged, you know, salary man who mm-hmm. it works for a white-collar company just, you know, keeling over from a heart attack at his desk. But actually when you look at the statistics – one of the fastest growing areas is strokes, you know, and the people who suffer that the most are doctors and teachers who work just insanely long hours. For younger people, suicide and depression are huge factors that lead to, um, that are part tied to this overwork and death. And uh, I spent some time, uh, you can actually apply for a workman's comp benefit if you're too depressed to go to work. And then they'll send you to this like depression school where you can try to learn how to go back to work. Uh, And what they're trying to teach people is how to say no. And I kind of want to shake them and it's like, you can't expect people to say no to a system. You know, you can't expect the individual to be what can change that system. The individual... You know, there are people who are just dropping out because they see that that's the only alternative. I was talking to one uh, young college student who's part of a, part of this movement to try to make change, part of a, a, a very small labor union they call Posse. And he, I, I was talking to him, and he just said, you know, we just want to work. We want to have good jobs. We want to work 40 hours a week. We want to be able to get married and have children. He said, we just want a decent life. Mm-hmm. But the ironic thing is he never told his parents that he was working for this un- labor union because his parents expect him and are putting pressure on him that he will go to work for one of these prestigious companies, this kind of one road, and you know, and be on his path to overwork and early death. So it's a, it's a really uh, it's a troubling phenomenon. And when you look at how do you change that, that's it's got to come from a much bigger it's it, you know you need to press it on all all sides but it's really got to come from leadership yeah. creating the space to say what we're doing now isn't working how can we change wow that's really powerful <laughs> I, I almost feel like where you know where do we go from here you know i do you do you feel like the us is I mean, marginally better or perhaps a lot better, but maybe going down the same path in some ways or just different or? Well, I do think we need to look at, at you know, the rising sense of, of insecurity or precariousness because that does drive uh, a lot of overwork from, you know, in the knowledge work area. You know, you certainly saw that after the 2008 recession and yeah. you saw people doing more with less, but you also saw overwork really spike just like it did in the 1980s because people were worried. Right. You know, there wasn't that same sort of sense of job security, like, oh, my God, if these big banks can fail, my job, can I can be out of work, so I'm going to work really, really, really hard to show that I shouldn't be the one laid off next right. time. So it, it, you know, fostered that overwork in the kind of the high-wage area. And then in the low-wage area, 
you know, the social contract is gone. Yeah. There's so many crummy jobs without benefits, and you're stringing together your Uber, Uber hours with maybe some care work, maybe, with maybe something else, that it's so difficult to just try to, to make it work. So I think we all need to be thinking very seriously, particularly as we think of the future of work. You know, what does that uncertainty and precarity do? And how can you bring back a sense of security, you know, when you look at the United States versus Japan, I think we like to think of Japan as this, oh, it's this weird place and we're not like that at all. And, oh, they have the samurai tradition and so they're all full of self-sacrifice. And, you know, that's not really what I saw at all. Uh, overwork is a pretty new phenomenon in, in Japan, mm-hmm. just as it is here. Yeah. Over, You know, people didn't overwork in the 50s and 60s. No, they talk, left work and they left work. You, you, <laughs> I, I've interviewed so many people who'd say, you know, my dad was a lawyer, my dad was a doctor, you know, and he'd be home for dinner at five. Yeah. So, so we have, and that was also a very productive era. So we we have done this before. We we know how to be productive and also have lives. So, I, I think we need to make this a much more serious conversation about what's happening. Um, and frankly, in the United States, we don't know. We don't know if we have the similar sort of karoshi or overworked statistics because we don't measure it. Yeah. You don't necessarily, you can't necessarily apply for workman's comp for a heart attack, you know, that that's tied to a certain number of hours of overwork right. in the way that you can in Japan. So I don't know if we are any different or any better here. I'm so grateful Bridget could be with us today. Thank you to our producers and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you would like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, reach out to me on LinkedIn My profile is under the name Jennifer Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. (laughs) 